Well, it's a pleasure to be back with you again this morning. This is, I believe, the uh, third time that I've been able to come up here and try to help out as your congregation goes through a period of change. And I appreciate Brother Luke there reading uh, James chapter 1 for us this morning. Uh, We are going to turn our attention this morning to James chapter 1. If you have been here the last few times that I've taught, you know that we're working our way through verses 1 through 18 of James chapter 1. Uh, Taking our time with it, this will be the fourth time that we've considered these verses. We'll be considering verses 13 through 16 in detail this morning, and then uh, provided there's no change of plans, uh, we'll be considering the last two verses, 17 and 18, at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, I do want to mention, though, as I have several times, that these verses fit into a larger context, which is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The context deals with the matter of how we go about facing trials and temptations in our life. And I'll remind you that as we've considered this, we see that James uses one Greek word that is translated as both trials and temptations. And we have gone over that in the past of why there, we consider there to be a difference, but there's really not that big of a difference between trials and temptations in the life of a Christian because they can either lead to sin or they can lead to, to victory through Jesus Christ. Now, I do believe in reading the Word of God, and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to stand up here and fill a large portion of the time that I have in front of you by reading the Word of God. Uh, so I want to read verses 1 through 18 with you again this morning, uh, and I just pray that you'll, you'll let these words wash over you and sink into you as we consider in detail verses 13 through 16 this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, we see right there that James is addressing this letter primarily to believers, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And that word temptations there gets used to refer to both temptations and trials as James goes through these 18 verses. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, speaking primarily there of wisdom and how to face trials and temptations. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that let for let not that men think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double minded man is unstable in all his ways. The verses we covered last time beginning verse begin in verse nine. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And then our verses for today, beginning in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived... It bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not, and that, do not err, my beloved brethren. I will go ahead and say right now that I include verse 16 
with the preceding verses, there are people that would differ with me and would include verse 16 with the following verses. It may well be that everybody is right in verse 16 is a transitional verse uh, going into verse 17, uh, and we'll read verses 17 and 18 just to finish the context. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Lord, you have laid in front of us a text from your mind, delivered unto men to write unto us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, let us not think anything less of these words than what we would think of words that come directly from your mouth to our ears, for that is what they are. The words we read today, Lord, and words that we concentrate on are hard because they deal with a thing that plagues, that dogs the heels of everybody in here. And that is the idea of lust and temptation and falling into sin because of lust. Lord, we pray today that we will see that there is only one path that is available to the Christian for combating lust and desires that come into our life. And that path is our Lord Jesus Christ. Without him, Lord, we can do nothing. We pray, Lord, that as we consider these verses today, that you will see that our strength comes from Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there was a comedian back when I was growing up. And uh, by the way, I was not saved until I was 30 years old. So if I tell stories about when I was a child, I thought as a child, I acted like a child. I lived as a child. I was a child. I was not a Christian. I did childish and simple things, and one of the things I did was uh, there was was a show on TV that featured comedians, and there was one comedian by the name of Flip Wilson. Most of you have never heard of him. Uh, The younger people up here, the older people are back here, yeah, the younger people. No, but he was a comedian, and he was made famous by a single line that he uttered every time he got up to do his, his, his routine, and that line was, the devil made me do it. Any time that he did something wrong, he had an excuse. The devil made me do it. What does the Bible say about that? Does the Bible tell us that that's true or that that's a lie? I want to, first of all, before I go into anything that I say, is anything that I say today does not underestimate the impact of Satan in this world. I believe Satan is an act and his demons are active agents causing mayhem in the world today plaguing both believers and non-believers alike. So nothing I say today I want you to misconstrue as that I don't believe that Satan and his demons are active agents working in the world today. If, if you go back and listen to when I, was a, when I was attending here and teaching before, if you go back to Ephesians and listen to chapter 2 or chapter 6 of that, of that, you will see that I'm a firm believer in that Satan is active in the world today. However, that doesn't concern the matter that we're looking at in James today. What James will tell us today is that for the most part, the devil doesn't even have to bother with us. Why? Why are we led astray? Why do we fall into temptation? Why do we have problems with lust that we can't overcome? James is going to tell us it's because of our own evil desires. So just remember, I don't want you to, I don't want you to think I'm minimizing Satan. What I want to do today is focus on not Satan's role in sin and temptation, but I want to focus on your and my role in sin and temptation. So, let's read 13 through verses 13 through 16 again, and then talk about them in detail. 
Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Point number one, if you're going along with me in the outline, point number one is temptation is going to occur. Temptation is going to occur. Temptation is going to happen to the Christian. Look at verse 13 with me. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Notice what verse 13 says. It says, when he is tempted. Not if, but when. It is sure that you, you as a Christian, will be tempted. And if I can use my own experience and apply it to you, you will be tempted frequently. Unlike verses 2 through 12 that we have covered in the past, this time when James uses the word temptation, he is definitely talking about temptation to do evil. You remember in the past, as we've talked about this, often this word is used for general trials or temptations that come into our life. And we've talked about some of those trials that come into our life, whether they be the loss of a job or sickness, uh, the car stalling on the interstate. All of those trials come into our life. Some of them may be the result of sin. Some of them may not be the result of sin, but trials come into our life. But as we turn our attention to verses 13 to 16 today, we need to understand this is talking specifically about the temptation to do evil things. Now, in verses 2 through 12, we saw that how we deal with trials is a test of our genuine faith. We need to realize that every trial has a temptation that comes along with it. Every trial that comes into our life has a temptation that comes along with it. Name a trial. Somebody name a trial. Maybe you faced it this week. Maybe you faced it last week. Name a trial that has come into your life. All right. I mean, what? Okay. A sick, a sick, okay. Loss of a job. Let, let, let's, do, let's do that one. A loss of a job. What is, is there a temptation that comes along with that trial? Well, there's, there is. There's a, tem, there, there's a temptation that comes along with every trial, and that temptation can be generally expressed like this. Am I going to handle this trial in a godly way? or an ungodly way? Am I going to handle this trial according to the precept of the Bible, or am I going to handle this trial according to the precept of the world? Those are just two ways of expressing the exact same thing, you understand. So every trial that comes our way comes with a temptation pinned to it. And basically that temptation is going to say, how are you going to handle this? You're going to do it God's way, you're going to do it your way. And we can go through any number of trials that I've been through, that you've been through, and you can always see that. You're always given the choice, am I going to face this God's way or am I going to face this man's way? Am I going to face this the world's way? Now, in verses 13 through 15, we will see that how we deal with temptations is also a test of genuine faith. How we deal with trials is a test of genuine faith. How we deal with temptation is also a test of genuine faith. Now, the middle phrase of verse 13 says this. Look at verse 13 with me. For God cannot be tempted with evil. At this point, someone in here might be saying this. Hold on a minute. Wasn't Jesus tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Everybody remember that story? Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. 
It's easy to remember. It just happens to fall in the same chapter. Was not Jesus driven into the wilderness by the Spirit and tempted there? Was Jesus not God? Well, I'll even throw another verse out for you. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we have not a high priest, this is talking about Jesus Christ, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, did the writer of Hebrews just make a mistake? Is he arguing with James? James says God cannot be tempted with sin. The writer of Hebrews says God was tempted with sin. Is this an argument? Is this an an irreconcilable position that two writers of the Bible have gotten, gotten into? Well, let's see what we know. Do we know that Jesus was God? Anybody know the Nicene Creed? And I'm not talking about by heart, but Jesus, God, a very God. Jesus was 100%, in our vernacular today, Jesus was 100% God. But what else do we know about Jesus Christ? If we want to say he's 100% God, is that the whole truth? He's also 100% man. The Nicene Creed will say the same thing. Man, a very man, born of the Virgin Mary. And it will go on to explain how Jesus was 100% man. Now, show of hands, who in here can understand that? 100% God, 100% man. It is a truth that we accept by faith without the ability to comprehend it, without the ability to put our hands around it. In his humanity, Jesus was man, just like we are. And he was able to be approached by Satan with an enticement to do evil. But Jesus is also 100% God. And being 100% God, it assured that he would successfully overcome any and all temptations that came his way without sinning. There is no way that we can ever fully grasp this truth, how Jesus could be tempted and be just like we are, as it says in Hebrews, tempted in every way we are, and yet be unable to fall into that temptation. I'm not going to stand up here and try to explain it any more than that, but I will tell you that understanding how Jesus is 100% God and 100% man is the way to understand how Jesus can be tempted and yet have no chance of falling due to that temptation. Now, an eye-opening concept emerges from Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, though. Jesus was not immune from temptation. And then, therefore, we as Christians are certainly not immune from temptation either. A lot of people would like to have a Christianity that says, Hey, I'm going to become a Christian and my life is going to be all roses and nice, you know, flowery walking paths and nothing is ever going to go wrong. I will propose to you that temptations will increase as a result of becoming a Christian. Now, let's move on to the next point. Uh, well, first of all, are there any questions? I, 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 I really don't want to just stand up here and, and give a monologue. If anybody has anything you want to ask or say, I'd be happy to, to just stop and do that. John? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm getting to that right now. They're, they're called, because there is there is ways of understanding this phrase, and uh, and why don't we just do that? We'll we'll do that because point number two uh, tells us this. Um, tenta- uh, point number two reads like this: Temptation does not originate with God. Look at verse thirteen again. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Verse thirteen tells us two things are impossible. The first thing that verse 13 tells us is impossible is God cannot be tempted with evil. And John, this I think will help answer your question here some. If it doesn't, stop and we'll go over it, okay? 
The literal text in the Greek there says, God is inexperienced with evil. All evil is outside of the character of God. And so when we read the words, uh, God cannot be tempted with evil, what we should read that as is God in his character has no direct experience with evil. And that helps us understand this some. It helps us understand how it is possible for Jesus Christ to be tempted, yet remain completely inexperienced with evil, with that temptation. You know, somebody could explain to me Einstein's theory of relativity. Is all of a sudden I'm tempted to become a nuclear scientist? No, you explain it to me, and it goes over my head. And I'm not saying Jesus can't comprehend it. What I'm saying is Jesus is inexperienced with evil. Evil can't touch him. It goes, uh, I won't, evil cannot touch Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is inexperienced with evil. That is what this is trying to say here. Now, does that help, John? That that, that that helps get there? So two things are impossible. God cannot be tempted with evil. And second of all, uh, God cannot tempt anyone with evil. God in no way is responsible for us being tempted. God is in no way responsible for our being tempted. Now, here's a practical application of verse 13. Man and women often refuse to take responsibility for failing to deal properly with temptations. Man wants to try to blame his sin. Usually we try to disguise it a little bit, though. Now, we can sit here and think all day long about a child who gets caught doing something, and what do they try to do? They try to make an excuse. They first of all say, I didn't do it. And then when it's proved they did do it, they said, but my sister made me do it. My brother made me do it. Uh, and the excuse is just starting to flow. But I want to propose to you that the problem goes a lot farther back than that. The problem of making excuses and not dealing properly with sin goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, for example. After Adam and Eve sinned, do you remember Adam offering an excuse to God why the sin occurred? Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 13 says this, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, that's Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, Yes, Lord, I did it. I'm guilty. Is that what he said? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The idea of finding someone else to blame for our sins goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, Yes, Lord, I took of the tree. You told us not to take of the tree. I ate of it. I gave it to my husband to eat. I have sinned. Is that what she said? No. The woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. In other words, to go back to my 70s experience as a child, the devil made me do it. Well, her excuse is a lot closer than anybody else's because it was Satan that was doing that. But you see no personal responsibility. She didn't say, I did it, I was wrong. She said, the serpent made me do it. Uh, Adam, in essence, told God, I'm not guilty. It's the woman's fault. Actually, it's your fault, God. You, You put her here. And what does the woman say? She places the blame squarely upon the certain, that is Satan. 
She says, the devil made me do it. I want to propose to you that things have not changed much in those 8,000 years, plus or minus, since that occurred. We do the exact same thing. We take our sins and we start trying to shift the blame for our sins upon other people or other factors, other situations. What we'll learn today as we continue on in this part of the book of James is where do we really fix the blame for our falling into the temptations and sins that we fall into. Now, sometimes we do it like this. It's my parents' fault. If my parents had brought me up this way, I wouldn't have done it. Or if my parents had actually stayed in the house, I wouldn't have done it. If my mom and dad hadn't divorced, I wouldn't have done it. Or it's my body's fault. How do you expect me to control these hormones that are in my body? It's the environment's fault. Perhaps one of the favorite ones today, it's the government's fault. Or perhaps the one that's closest to a lot of us, it's the church's fault. The church told me that I should be doing X and I should not be doing this. And I propose to you that sometimes the church will tell you the wrong thing to do. The standard is the word of God, not the bylaws of the church. Now, point number three. Temptation is our own responsibility. Look at verses 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James is telling us that sin is an inside job. God did not make you do it. The devil, more than likely, did not make you do it. When you sin, when you fall into a temptation, more than likely, you have done it to yourself. I'm reminded here of Paul's discourse about sin in Romans chapter 7. Now, I won't read the whole thing, but I will read verses 15 to 17 of Romans chapter 7. This is Paul writing here. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now that's a tongue twister. But what did Paul say? He says that basically what I really want to be doing, I don't do. And what I really don't want to be doing, I do it anyway. And why? It's because I have sin dwelling in me. Paul never says the devil made me do it. Paul never says it's God's fault. Paul looks at himself when he sins and says, why did I sin? Because I have sin dwelling in me. We like to blame our sin on Satan. It's a popular pastime among Christians to, to look at everything that goes wrong and say, a demon of this made me do it, or Satan came to me and told me, told me to do this. Or uh, we, we, It's a pastime of many Christians to try to blame our sin upon Satan. Satan does not even have to waste his time with me, and I propose with most of us in here today. Why? Because we sin because of our own evil desires. I'm not saying here, and I made this disclaimer at the beginning, I'm not saying here that Satan doesn't tempt us to sin. What I am saying is that you and I have a sin nature and that we are personally responsible for our sins. The problem is not the tempter from the outside. The problem is not with the tempter from the outside, with Satan or his demons or even another person. The problem is the traitor that dwells within. 
And I hope you see that that's what James is saying here. The problem is not because there's temptation. The problem is that we have a traitor living within us. And it's key, and James calls it our own evil desires. James uses a picture of, of a progression of seduction to show how sin works. James mixes metaphors. James is going to mix the metaphors between hunting and childbirth. And I am going to do very, something very similar, but I'm going to mix the metaphors between fishing and childbirth. You realize how hunting has changed significantly since the days of Jesus Christ. You know, what do they use to hunt? Spear? But more often they used a, a trap. Good try, though, John. Very good. I appreciate the interaction. But, but, but hunters in Jesus Christ's time, they didn't have a rifle. They killed primarily by the use of a trap. Things have come a long way. We don't have a lot of trapping today. We, we, we have long-range rifles. And so what I, what I have to do to help us understand it in today's world is instead of talking about hunting, I have to do it in the way of fishing. Because you think about fishing, it hadn't changed all that much, has it? Fishing hadn't changed all that much. We have some more high-tech stuff. We have you know sonar finders and, and power boats and all that kind of stuff. But in essence, fishing hasn't changed that much. Now, I hope that there's somebody in here that does a little fishing. This is going to just fall flat if I don't have somebody to interact with. So I need, I need somebody who knows a little bit about fishing. You have to know almost nothing, but I need somebody with a little bit of fishing. Who's going to, who's, who's going to work with me? I need somebody to work with me here. Okay, Herman, you're going to work with me. Now, I want you to place yourself in a boat in the middle of the lake, okay? You're going fishing for the day. And I want you to put yourself in this boat, and what you do is you go out in the middle of this lake, and you have a table in your boat, and you set up your little Coleman stove, and you set a frying pan on that stove, right? And the fish jumps out of the lake into your frying pan. Is that the way you fish? Is that what happens when you fish? Have you ever fished like that? Have you ever had a fish jump out of the lake into the frying pan? No. Anybody? If this was a group of a 1,000, and I asked that question, how many hands would go up? What? Z- Z- yeah, zero. That does not happen, okay? Now, there is a process that is required to take that fish and put them in the frying pan, right? Well, James is going to describe that process in terms of sin. And I'm going to mix the metaphors with James here, and I'm going to help us understand the process. The first thing we see is the bait. Notice the words in in, uh, verse uh, 13. Lord, drawn away. Dragged away, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. Your, your version may have something different, but I dare say that most everybody in here looking at various versions of the Bible is going to see the words lured, drawn away, or dragged away in verse 14. That word describes luring an animal into a trap with a bait. And that's why I say I have to mix metaphors because we don't understand the idea of trapping all that much. We understand the idea of fishing. So that first word, that the word I want you to see first in there, lured, dragged away, or drawn away, is bait. It is the, the word described, the luring an animal into a trap with bait. Verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away, when he is baited into a trap of his own lust and enticed. Now, look at the verse closely with me. What is the bait? Every man, when he is tempted, when he is drawn away, What's the next phrase? Of his own lust. Listen very closely. Not lust in general. Of his own lust. We see immediately now 
why God cannot be tempted with evil, nor can he tempt anybody with evil. Why? Because there's no evil desires or lusts within God. Now, let me ask you a personal question, and you don't have to answer this out loud. This is, a, this is one of those things you need to think about. What is on the bait, on the hook, that is cast your way? Now, I just happen to have something here. I'm glad I didn't mix it up with what I bought for the lunch today. This is catfish bait. This is catfish bait. And just reading the, reading the thing here, it's called Magic Bait, America's Favorite Fish Bait. The next line says, Chicken liver and chicken blood prepared dough catfish bait. Now, I suppose that I could be 100% correct in saying nobody is interested in this for lunch today, right? Right? What? You might... Yeah, yeah. I, I dare say that nobody in here is interested in in this for lunch today, right? But somebody loves it. Who loves it? Catfish love it. I mean, Academy Sports sells this for the express purpose of telling you catfish love this. Now, why am I belaboring the point? Is because what looks absolutely wonderful and delicious to me is going to look disgusting to you. And what you consider what you consider to be absolute tempting beyond your ability to control is absolutely disgusting to me. You understand now the meaning of the word, your own lust. What tempts you doesn't tempt me necessarily, and what tempts me doesn't tempt you necessarily. We are all dragged away. We are all baited into a trap by our own lust. Now, next, where am I? Sorry, I lose my place when I put my notes down. Uh, the second thing we notice is we see the hook. Uh, let's just finish this out, uh, Brother Herman. When, uh, when we fish, we have a bait, and then on, what do we put the bait on? We put the bait on a hook. The next thing that we notice is the hook. We see the hook at the end of verse 14. Notice the word enticed. Notice the word enticed. Drawn away is talking about the baiting. Enticed is what does the catching. The word literally means and I, as I mentioned, James mixes, mixes metaphors. The word enticed literally means to catch a fish with a hook. It describes being trapped, consenting to follow after the temptation down a pathway to do evil. Now, I went, you know, obviously I went shopping at Academy Sports because I also have here a bag of fish hooks. Now, who can tell me about a fish hook? You know, I got, and I'm not going to take this out. I'd hurt myself with this if I took this thing out. But, but you have this straight shaft, and it comes down here, and it makes a U-turn, and then it's got something on the end. And I want to point out there's, there's really two things going on the, on the end of a fish, fish hook, right? What's one thing going on on the end of a fish hook? Yeah, it, it, okay, it's curved, but on the end. I'm thinking about the end. It's pointed on the end, right? But is that the only thing going on on the end? What else goes on on the end of a fish hook? It's got a point that makes it go in. It's got a spur or a bar. I think it's called a barb. I'm not sure. I'm not a fisherman, but I think it's called a barb to keep it from coming back out. Look at the word enticed in verse 14, and I want you to think about a fish hook. Sin has a point on one end that makes it very easy to go in, but it also has a barb that makes it very difficult to come back out. You get the word picture? Just like the fish hook has a point and the fish hook has a barb to make it easy to go in and possible to come out, sin has those exact same properties. It's so sweet and smooth going in, but when it gets into a person's life, 
it is impossible without the work of God to get it back out. Now, third, Herman, we have the bait, we have the hook, and then we actually have that hook attached to a line that goes on to a fishing yeah, fishing rod or pole, and on that there is a thing with a little handle on it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm reading my notes here, and I got to get to the word that I want here. It's got a reel on it, okay? When we fall for the bait and we are trapped by the hook, the next step downward is sin. I said I was mixing metaphors. James mixes the metaphors. The child which is conceived when lust and enticement come together is sin. We see this in verse 15. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James switches metaphors on us here. He goes from the picture of hunting and fishing to a word picture of childbirth. Sin is not an act. Sin is a process. All sin is premeditated. You know how some people get a lighter sentence for murder because they say it was not premeditated? That's a lie. All sin is premeditated. You design a plan in your mind before you ever commit the act of sin. The designing of the plan to sin and the actual act of sin are all the same. That is why Jesus can say this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. If I stop right there and say, Is it bad to commit adultery? I hope everybody in here would say yes. But I, Jesus talking, say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. The act of thinking it through, planning it out, designing the process of sinning is a sin just as much as the act itself. Now, a note here that I should say. You should never say that there is no fun in sin. There is oftentimes great fun in sin. That's the point on the fish hook. But there's a problem. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 17 says this, Bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth shall be filled with gravel. Or how about Hebrews 11 verses 24 to 26? This is talking about Moses. By faith Moses, when he was come to years or come of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. What did they just say? Moses saw the pleasures of sin for a season, but he chose instead to look at the greater riches of Jesus Christ and the recompense of the reward. Sin gives a short, temporary, banishing, fleeting reward. Refusal to sin gives, as Jesus Christ might say, treasure in heaven. Now, fourth, and we'll finish this out because now the fish is hooked. The fish has been baited. The fish has been hooked. The fish has been reeled in. There's only one place left for the fish to go. Now, I'm not talking about we throw them back. To the frying pan. To the frying pan. The fourth thing we see is the frying pan. Look at the end of verse 15. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished. What's the end process? Bringeth forth death. What is the finished product of sin? Death. What is the child that is born when temptation gives way to sin? Death. 
The child that is born when temptation gives way to sin is a murderer. Romans 6.23, very familiar verse, says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, uh, point number four. Temptation, and this is why I add verse 16 in. Some people don't do this, but I do. Temptation can be overcome by discernment. Look at verse 16. Very simple. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Let's look at it in a couple of other translations. Do not be deceived or stop being led astray. Stop blaming, and I'm, I've finished reading translations. I'm going to my own commentary now. Stop blaming God. Stop blaming Satan. Stop blaming others. Lay the blame for sin where it belongs. And that is squarely upon ourselves. Deal with our, we need to deal with our desires properly and don't let them bait us into temptation and into sin. Now, that is where I want to end today, except for a story. A story that is often told, uh, repeated in numerous sources. It comes from St. Augustine and his book, Confessions. If anybody has read anything about St. Augustine or heard anything on St. Augustine's life, you know that he lived for a majority of his young life as a profligate. He was a sinner, a great sinner. He had multiple mistresses. Uh, he had children by some of those mistresses. And then he was converted. And the story is told by Augustine himself that one day he met one of those mistresses on the road, out on the street. And he paid no attention to her until she ran after him and called, Augustine, it is I. Augustine, it is I. And then he said one, turned around and said one simple sentence to her, yes, but it is no longer I. Augustine knew the truth, that there is only one way to overcome temptation in our lives, and that is for us to become no longer us, but under the control of Jesus Christ. Left to ourselves, we will fall. The unbeliever has no idea what I'm talking about here. You as believers know exactly what I'm talking about. Left to ourselves, we will fall. Leaning upon Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within us, is the only means of success. Well, that's what I have for you this morning. Uh, does anybody have anything you want to add? Any questions? Uh, be happy to be happy to try to entertain. Uh, we can look at the Bible if we need to. Um, yeah, well, I appreciate being asked to come up here and, and share it. Uh, all right. Well, what I think I will do is I will pray, and then it uh, looks like John has a song for us here. And then, Brother Herman, uh, if you have anything that uh, we need, you need to say after that, uh, just I'll, uh, I'll, be, I'll sit down after I pray. Lord God, we, uh, we look at your word, and at least I know when I look at your word, I, I see the word guilty stamped all over myself because of what I've read. I realize, Lord, that, uh, that I am just so guilty of handling things my own way. And I confess before this people here that uh, even this week is uh, I've been dealing with things in my life. There's oftentimes that I have handled my things my own way. Uh, and that when things go wrong, I'm the first one to try to shift the blame to somebody else or make an excuse for what I did wrong. Uh, Lord, I need this lesson as much today as maybe anybody in here, probably more than anybody in here. I pray, praise you, Lord, for working out the timing that you have to bring these verses to my attention, and I pray that maybe they will help somebody else that is dealing with uh, responding to temptation uh, also. Lord, your word 
never goes out void, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us not quench the work of the Holy Spirit as we've had this work go into our hearts. That you'll help it, the word be for edification, for growth, for maturity, and not for judgment. These things I pray, Lord, looking to your Son, Jesus Christ, as the author and the finisher of my faith. Amen.